Hello, and welcome to the Immersive Chemistry Podcast, a podcast which examines the intersection of chemistry, chemical engineering, game design, educational sciences, and technology. In each episode, we explore the impact of immersive learning research on these fields through interviews and discussion. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Jesse. Jesse, how are you today? Yeah, thank you, Tim. I'm doing great. And how are you doing? I'm doing quite well, actually, and I'm very much looking forward to hearing your thoughts about the discussion I had with our guest today. Yeah, so why don't we cut to that right now? Okay, hello, everybody. I'm here with Emanuele Bardone for the interview section of this episode of the podcast. Emanuele, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Um, Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's it's a pleasure. Maybe a little bit of background about um, how I know you. You worked as one of my lecturers during my Masters of Educational Technology with Tartu University, a fantastic university in Estonia. Um, I, I must admit the, the Masters course I did with you was one of the reasons why I even considered um, pursuing a PhD, which, which I'm now one year in. Uh, but Perhaps to, to begin with, you can actually share a little bit about uh, your maybe your research background or your background in general and, and what you're working on at the moment. Yes, my position is called the Senior Researcher of Educational Technology, which doesn't tell you much, I suspect. Uh, my background is actually in philosophy. So I did a PhD. I did actually BA, MA, PhD in philosophy. But more specifically, I've been always interested in science and technology. And so that's the reason why I'm dealing with educational technology. Uh, At the moment, I'm uh, the program director of this uh, uh, master's program in educational technology, which is uh, uh, partly online. Uh, It's one-year master program. Uh, We meet the students at the very beginning of the school year for about two uh, two weeks for a very intense study period. And then we continue the teaching and learning activities online. Uh, this has been, I think, my main focus and my main interest in the last two years. First of all, because, of course, I have to manage a program, which is not a simple thing to do, especially when you have to deal with so many people coming from all over the world. And, uh, and secondly, because it's been, a, it's been a very, very interesting experience for me coming from uh, philosophy to see how practitioners interpret their relationship with technology, more specifically with educational technology or educational technologies. I guess one of the reasons why I thought of having you on to this podcast is because a lot of the people in the in the Charming Project that I work with actually have a background in uh, chemical engineering, in chemistry, and there's not a lot of... Uh, there's not a lot of knowledge around educational technology as a discipline or as a domain of research. And I think it's something that would be useful in maybe exploring that a little bit more, first generally, and then more specifically around maybe the emerging technologies such as uh, virtual reality, augmented reality. Now, I'm not sure what your opinions are on, on these type of technologies and whether or not they you can imagine them playing a part in a type of blended learning curriculum that you're sort of running at Tartu. Where do you see educational technology as a domain of research and how does it connect to other aspects uh, within university level education? 
Yeah, this is, I think, the most important thing to ask. The, more, the, the, the very first question that we should ask, what is, uh, what is educational technology? from the practitioner's point of view as well as from the researcher's point of view. I can speak from the researcher's point of view because I'm doing this now. Uh, to be honest, I don't know what educational technology is as a discipline. Uh, I have some clues, so I can share with you my clues. Uh, the first thing is that I don't think that it's, it's a sort of negative definition, so I'm going to tell you what educational technology I don't think is not. I don't think that it's just about uh, uh, put into use all the fancy digital technologies that we have. So this is, this is the first point. I think that educational technology is way more than that. Uh, to give you a more positive perspective, uh, I would say that educational technology is about how we organize teaching and learning due to the fact that we have so many tools that we can use uh, to, to, to learn and to teach and to think also, because we don't have to forget that if there is one thing that teaching and learning have in common is thinking as a process. So I would say that I will give you this very broad definition, uh, which is, I just repeat it, educational technology deals with the way in which we can organize or even imagine the way in which we can uh, teach and learn. S straight away from that, I, I, I'm thinking about the... Um, my interest in virtual reality and I definitely think there is this risk where we do try to apply these new and exciting technologies to learning environments and learning experiences where they just don't fit and I think one of the things our project is trying to do is actually make sure that we conduct the rigorous scientific research that's necessary to determine how these technologies can support, support learning as opposed to just this sort of these bells and whistles that get adopted in institutions or bought and purchased at schools or universities and then collect dust o o over the years. Um, from my background, originally teaching at primary schools, I, I know we saw these with um, th this commonly happen with certain uh, maybe computers or, or even iPads that they weren't really integrated into, into the curriculum as one would have hoped. Do you see, I mean, how do you see this perspective? Well, uh, thinking, thinking about immersive learning technologies, VR, augmented reality. Well, uh, well, I must say that it's very interesting, but at the same time, I don't think that we can think of these tools without uh, uh, considering the context in which they might be appropriated. And, and the major critical point for me is that uh, we may end up using these fantastic tools, because they are fantastic. They are really great tools. Uh, we may end up using these tools for doing exactly the same things that we have ever done. And in some cases, we can also do it even more effectively. And perhaps we should also talk about uh, this, this word effectiveness, which is, uh, which is a kind of mantra in educational technology. Everywhere I see people saying, how can we uh, you know, use uh, all these digital technologies to make learning more effective? Uh, I don't think that this is a good, uh, good place to start from, uh, but, uh, but, but going back to what you were saying, I think that contextualizing, situating these wonderful tools is our job. We have to address the context. We have to address the context. Otherwise, we're just going to do the same thing using different tools. 
even when the tools themselves have the potential to change the way in which we organize teaching and learning. And you see that I always mention teaching and learning together. There's no teaching without learning and no learning without teaching. I would argue that sometimes there is a lot, there's a lot of teaching and no learning happens. Yeah, well, yes, yes, yes. So let's, I just want to dwell on that point about effectiveness to begin with. Why don't yeah. you elaborate? Uh, well, I think that it's not, uh, I mean, that shouldn't be our goal because I think that what technology does is to provide us with uh, several different options, as I said, uh, to organize teaching and learning. So the main point is how we handle the variety of options that we have. So just to make an example, okay, we have virtual reality. How would we combine virtual reality with what we are already using, for example? Which is actually uh, a point of interest for a person like me who is dealing with blended learning. Can we have, for example, webinars in a virtual environment in which we can see each other's bodies? Or if we have a sort of 3D representation of us, so a kind of a, a environment in which uh, uh, it feels like being in a room together. So that would be for me a big, a big, a big question mark. But in order to reach that point, uh, we have to address the issue of distance learning or distance education. So it's not just about virtual reality, but it's about the meaning of distance education. Why do we have to have distance education, for example? So you see that it's more about, again, how we organize teaching and learning given the variety of options that we have. It's not about effectiveness. Because it's very hard to map uh, the, the effectiveness uh, on, of, of one single tool without considering the context. Okay, so this is a question that's not really a question, but this is a point that's become obvious to me as I've been working with commercial partners on, on, yeah. on, the, on the project. If a company is going to invest, and this could also work for a university or even a school, in an educational technology... Typically, what they want to see is how does this application of the technology, and in reality, the question is how does this technology compare to how we're teaching or how our employees, our students are learning the content in the traditional way, whatever traditional way means. I think it typically means the way we're doing things now, because if I'm going to spend 30,000 euro on uh, 10 headsets, 10 VR headsets, they want to know is it effective in comparison to what we're doing now? So how does that fit into, into what you're saying regarding the you know, effectiveness is not the, the right question? Well, obviously, I would say that this is also provocation, of course. I think that we are not starting from the right point. I mean, it's not a good start. Because what are we interested in? Are we interested in selling the piece of technology? Or are we interested uh, in learning and teaching? And this is it. Both of us are educational scientists with an interest in educational technology. Maybe we take the, this perspective. However, if you're looking at a company, you're not trying to. You're you're trying to actually. Uh, they're interested in knowing whether or not this technology is a good investment. So in a sense, in order to convince them of that, there's a different set of criteria from what we would require in order to be convinced of a certain implementation of a technology. Is it possible to bring, bring those two views together? I don't think that it's possible, but I mean, uh, I mean, let me try to backtrack for a second. 
I would say that we don't have to sell a piece of technology to companies. Or, or perhaps the other issue is this, are they willing to be involved uh, in some kind of uh, uh, research, uh, some kind of pilot that could help us figure out how to use this technology, which is, in your case, virtual reality, understood. But in that case, I mean, because I like, I like your passion. I mean, I know you, so I met you before, so I know that you're very passionate about virtual reality, and that's very good because we know, I mean, I mean we need people like you experimenting with these new tools. So that's not, a, I'm not taking issue with that. But then uh, you are clearly interested in doing research. Now, the question is, why is it the company should be interested uh, in buying or purchasing a technology which may not have r any real impact, uh, alone at least, uh, on, on teaching and learning? If the company is interested in experimenting, then it's okay. But then we're talking about something different. And I think that nowadays this is a very problematic area. Uh, can we involve the private sector in doing some, some pieces of research? Can, can, can they do research with us? Obviously, the first question that we'll come up with is, uh, what is the benefit for my own company? But then the problem is uh, the business model. <laughs> okay? So maybe we need, uh, we need to invest public money to attract those, uh, those companies that are willing to, to, to try out new things. That doesn't mean that we don't have to cooperate. I would say that I would go to a company, I mean, uh, if, 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 if I were asked uh, to collaborate with a, with a private company, uh, I would say, well, why don't we try to organize uh, your teaching courses uh, using different solutions? Okay, let's try to do that. And let's, let's, let's see how the, ex how, how the experiment goes. I would say, I would say this way. But, but then the question for you is, uh, why, do we th why do you think that we have to start from virtual reality and not from another starting point? That could be how to help you think of your training courses or whatever you're doing with your, with your employees in a different way, which is a question of options it becomes immediately a question of options, not of effectiveness. And for example, I have a course, you didn't take it because it wasn't there yet. It's called Critical Issues of Technology Using Education. And, uh, and, and what we realized uh, is that with the students uh, is that one crucial point is, are we interested in innovation or making money? Because the, th the two things don't necessarily go hand in hand. It may happen, it may happen, it may not happen. Uh, which, which uh, I mean, and, and, then, and then the question would be, what is innovation then? What is technological innovation? What is educational innovation in the public as well as in the private sector? The, the Charming Project itself is, is a very interesting uh, opportunity for both the private and public sector to meet because companies like Merck and Arkema and BASF They've actually invested in this project, not necessarily just in terms of money, but also energy, particularly Merck and Arkema are, are integral to the research um, for, for one, uh, one third of, of, of the research at least. And I think that's what makes it very special and actually very useful. In terms of how Merck is approaching this, 
they actually have a PhD researcher, Sophia, who is, uh, she's based at the company. And her research question is pretty much, there's all of these different ways of new methods of teaching. such And these methods of teaching, we're sort of calling immersive learning environments. Sophia, we want you to go out and, and sort of see what is the most... I'm going to use the word, what is the most effective way to teach our chemical plant operators who are in the apprenticeship program? And the different options are virtual reality, augmented reality, serious games, so maybe on a desktop computer. It could also be uh, the, an escape room. So these types of, these are different types of technologies that are interesting. Go and find out which one works best and compare it to our current methods. Now, this technology is not new. It's not like we don't know that there are certain benefits that it offers us over, let's say, sitting in a classroom and learning about health and safety environment protocols from a PowerPoint presentation. We know that there are some affordances that these technologies offer. And I guess these companies also know this. And the professors of chemical engineering at KU Leuven, they know this. So th there is something... In, in the in the air around this technology that's not just based on it's a new thing and oh it's cool and we should get it, it there is some there is something to support uh, the benefits that they offer I just I do think though it is it is really challenging to to have to to fundamentally say this is this technology is is the technology that we adopt as opposed to saying okay in this circumstance, teaching this thing with this instructional design, this technology works. It might not be better or worse, but it does work. And the Charming Project actually is giving us a chance to do that research in a, in a practical space, which is, which is with real chemical operators for, for this example. Yeah, this is a bit of the background of your of your of your research. I cannot say anything about the research. I mean, your search you're, that that you're conducting because it's. I mean, I don't know anything, and uh, and certainly I'm not an expert in that field. So really, I don't want to say anything about that. The question, okay, from a researcher's point of view, I would then ask you: Are you really doing research, or are you trying to? solve a problem, a very practical problem that boils down to should we use these things or not? Uh, which is, I don't think that it's a research question. I mean, uh, of course it's a research question because we don't know the answer. <laughs> but I would say that it's, uh, you know, my, my question would be why is it that it may work or why it's working? What are the circumstances uh, that allow this to work, is this something that we can have everywhere, that we can assume that it's gonna be everywhere, for example? Uh, how do you change as a teacher, for example? How do you change as a learner? So I'm way more interested in the context of application rather than the piece of technology per se, which, which can be the trigger for, for a nice experiment. Yeah, I think this is as I as I as I go through my progress in my PhD, I, I really see that this is the focus of educational science. It's all, it's mostly about the why, yeah. which is very different from let's say computers and human interaction research. Yeah. 
And educational sciences is always interacting with a certain context. Yeah. And in and in this case, it's it's chemistry and chemical engineering, workplace health and safety, and, and these sort of areas. Uh, and, and one of the challenges with working uh, on the project as well is that there's so many people from so many different disciplines. It's also one of the best things about the project because you really you really do hear different perspectives, and it really helps. The an, an engineer's mind, a chemical engineer's mind. Is, is quite different from a, the mind of a, an educational scientist. At least f- from that's how I see it and that's how yes. I've experienced yeah, yeah. it. That's how I've experienced it. Um, it doesn't mean, and it also doesn't mean that, well, what, what it does mean is that my process of research has po- been positively influenced by the engineer's approach to research questions. And I think this is also showing now talking to you as somebody who did a doctorate of philosophy in philosophy, for example. And, and, I, and it's also one of the reasons why, why I wanted to talk to you about it, because you do have an interesting way of, of thinking, about, thinking about things. Um, I would be interested in hearing what you say about... So let's talk about a specific use case. From the high, uh, sorry, from the university level, and this could also be applied to high school and, and even primary school. One of the challenges at the moment at universities is the amount of laboratory time that people have or students have access to to conduct experiments. So I guess there's a high number of students who need to be educated in certain processes. Therefore, the university places are, are expanding but the amount of supply has has not changed so it seems like they have to the professors and the lecturers have to um, teach more students with the same amount of time and the same amount of space and immersive learn, immersive technology seems to offer some solution to this problem and I don't think this is so and the reason it offers that is because the contexts of a, an, a lab can be virtualized. So they can actually put on a headset, they can run through the experiment in a, in a, in a virtual world as a practice session. It's not going to replace the real lab experiments, so they will still have a chance to go to the lab, but they'll actually be able to practice it many times over in the virtual world beforehand. Is this similar to why the blended learning curriculum that you're running at Tartu, why that's sort of interesting and why that's important? Is it because you need to be able to offer this sort of this, this, this program to people? Well, maybe it's not about the number of people who need to do the program, or, but more about where those people are located. Can you talk, touch on that, something around the blended approach? Well, I think that you had uh, two questions in, in this. Uh, the first question is about virtual reality and more specifically about simulations. So from a philosophical perspective, I would say that we have to talk about our simulacra and uh, our simulations because what virtual reality does is to provide the chance to simulate uh, environments and partly experiences. So the key, the key word here is simulation. So a philosophical and theoretical discussion about virtual reality in education would start from there. 
period. So we can have cognitive scientists studying whether or not simulations give us the sense of reality or not. We can talk about uh, also more psychological issues like, uh, well, you may have uh, the feeling, the sense of control when you are in a virtual uh, reality setting because everything is under your own control, for example. You can always pull out the glasses, for example. Uh, there is a third, uh, a third issue which is pedagogical. Uh, what do we do with, the, with, this, uh, with this simulation? So these are these are three three some of the questions that I would uh, that I would ask you actually. One is the question that is most interesting for me is 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 the metaphysical one. I mean, what is the ontological status of a simulation? Okay, which is very interesting. Some people think that uh, the 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 world that we see, the kind of reality that we see, is a hologram. So so the brain just reads holograms. Uh, and, and that's why I think that holograms are way more interesting than virtual reality per se. Uh, holograms are coming. I saw some ads uh, on the newspaper today. Uh, they're actually using holograms with, uh, with, uh, with, um, with children to distract them while they have some health treatments, for example. That would be a very interesting uh, thing to, to, to consider. So, so this is one thing. When it comes to blended learning, I think that you said it very well. We would like to build some kind of uh, community of practice, um, which uh, uh, that can be joined by, by by virtually everybody, from Africa to Australia, from the U.S. to Estonia, uh, Western Europe, Russia. Uh, that's the beauty of it. Uh, to be honest, uh, this is the fourth year that sorry, the third year that we're running this master. I don't see myself in the future always be involved in this kind of format. Uh, I, think, uh, I think that uh, it may work, but I don't know, to be honest. I see more, I mean, I see this more as a springboard for reimagining how we are actually engaging our master students. That would be, in, would be any way in Estonia whether they are foreigners coming here or not. Uh, especially because here in Estonia now, I have to talk about the Estonian case because otherwise we don't, we don't really, un I mean, you wouldn't understand what I'm trying to point at. Uh, at the master level, most of our students are actually working. So they are essentially part-time students, right? So they have a job from nine to five, usually, or they are teachers, educators. And, uh, and we have to find a way for them to be able to study and work at the same time. Whether they are living in Estonia or not, it doesn't really matter, you know. The moment in which you, you, you assume that your students are not going to come to your classroom because they may be working at that time, okay? So this is, this is I think, the problem, the long-term problem that we are facing. How can, we, how can we not attract, but how can we involve practitioners, people who are already working in their field? What is the best format that we can provide that can suit their needs and also their wishes and hopes, not just their needs? Because I hope that the master is just, it's also something inspiring people, not just telling them a few things.
when when I did the course, I was working full time, yeah. and it did it did lead it did inspire me to go on to continue research because I'd been out of the university system for for a decade almost since when I from when I first started. But what you're describing, people working and learning, is exactly what we're looking at as well with the companies. It's really about in-company training. So the lessons that you're learning in the blended learning program actually connect very well to industry where you have people who are, who are either on their own trying to develop new skills to maybe uh, move to the next stage in their career and often offered by the companies themselves. Would it be fair to say then that the technology is irrelevant in a sense? Can we sum it up from that perspective where the technology being used is irrelevant and it's more about how the technology is being used and what it's invoking is what's interesting or what's important? I think so. I think so. But here again, I would actually uh, frame the issue as an issue of variety of options, not of technology use. Because technology use, I mean, uh, we wrote a paper with a, with a doctor student where we made a distinction between uh, operational use and contextual use. So operational use is basically when you are able to handle the technology. So you can turn it on and off, you can use uh, some of the features. For example, with Facebook, you can post a picture or a video. You know how to do these things. So it's mere the operational level of using a piece of technology. So you know how to operate it, basically. Contextual use, which includes pedagogical use, educational use of any tool, is slightly different because you have the context. You have certain goals, you have certain values, you have decisions to make. And that opens up an entire new territory because at the operational use, basically, if you lack the feature, you lack the feature, you cannot do anything. But at the contextual level, you can always tinker with technology. And, uh, and this is how tinkering comes back. Uh, so, so, so it's an open question how you're going to use this or that tool in your own context. Considering that you have always other tools in that context, you have people who change all the time, you also change all the time as a teacher, but going back to your question, yes, absolutely. I mean, relevant is one word that we can use. The other word is meaningful, which is always contextual and to some extent contingent. So it's not that uh, if, if once it works, it's going to work forever. Uh, and perhaps the other thing that, 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 that they were discussing 15 years ago in HCI is that I think that when you don't perceive the presence of technology, when technology fades into the background, then it means that it works very well. Because we start talking about uh, and doing things related to learning and teaching. So, for example, now, now, now we're not talking about Zoom, okay? We're not talking about Zoom. We're just having a conversation. We're doing our own things, the things that we're interested in. And it's working today. And it's working. It's always working. Emanuele, um, thank you very much for providing those insights. As always, it's always very interesting to talk to you about these things. Uh, and hopefully, um, 
our listeners of the podcast find find it valuable as well. I think they will. Do you have anything you would like to share before we finish up? Not really. It's uh, here in Estonia is one fifty, and I'm quite hungry. So I would actually go to go to eat now. But thank you very much. It was a pleasure, and uh, and uh, you know, it's really a pleasure um, talking with you. Really about everything, especially educational technology, though I must say. Okay, that was a discussion that I had with Emanuele Bardone, I think it was last week or the week before. And Jesse, I'm very interested to hear what you um, what you thought about our conversation. Yeah, so I, I found the conversation very insightful. And one of the things I found very interesting how, was how Emanuele introduced us to the, the whole concept of educational technology, which I didn't know before. Uh, he mentioned also... Uh, that one of the things that you have to to address when you are talking about educational technology is the context itself. And I think that in the case of our project, uh, we are doing some sort of contextualization when we talk about working packages, because each of our working package uh, has its own context. So for instance, the working package one, they are working with children, so that's a different context compared to the the working package two or in university and the third one with professional training so that part was really interesting because yeah i kind of think about these things when i started the project but not really into the field of educational technology Uh, so in my particular case i'm currently exploring uh, the affordances of augmented reality and trying to find out if these advantages fit with my context in the university depending on the outcome then I will see if uh, my plan will be whether to use the augmented reality or maybe think in another way. So one of the things that he mentioned, and I like it a lot, was the fact that thinking about the tool, in in this case the technology, might lead us only to make the same things with the different tools. So that was very insightful for me. I think one of the things about educational technology and we did touch a little bit about this during our conversation is that it's very hard to get away from no matter who you are if you're a student you experience Mm. it in your learning if you're a lecturer or a teacher you experience it in your teaching no matter what the context Um, so I'm glad I'm, I'm glad you found it somewhat useful was there any uh, other key takeaways that you sort of had from the discussion that maybe you would like to highlight? Well, actually, one of the things I I, uh, I want to highlight about what you said was uh, that you mentioned that chemical engineer and educational science mind minds work differently, and we have different perspectives because of the way or of the what the things we have to research. So I consider that the fact uh, that chemical engineering are chemical engineers are involved in this project is very relevant and important because at this level of education and so in the university, uh, the ones that teach uh, are chemical engineers. So bringing educational science into this educational level may enrich the way chemical engineers learn, learn today, and this is something that I found very very useful for from the project to to in general to what we are doing. Yeah, and I do want to make the point, it's on a a general level, I think we think in different ways. And obviously, there's, well, maybe not so obviously, but I do think there is a spectrum of the way people think in all domains. Um, If I think about Tom van Gerven, who is the the lead of the project, 
he obviously respects the fact that the way teaching happens now in in a university and and in a workforce for example and at schools probably needs to even though when, even though it's in the domain of chemistry or chemical engineering there needs to be some input from educational scientists and the way that he sort of organized the companies the universities not only from the chemical education section but also from educational sciences like the one i'm from it shows that he 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 can see the value of these different domains coming together i I guess i wonder if that's even an engineering approach to to this type of project as well where you really you you identify the problem that needs to be solved and you look at a way the best ways in which you can solve that problem yeah, exactly, and 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 the fact that uh, that um, we are using, I, I feel that chemical engineering as a case study in which two disciplines or many disciplines are getting together, it's the perfect combination to see how this works, like interdisciplinary work, and see if we can do something together. Yeah, I, it's it's funny because another major component, of course, is the game design and even computer science, and it's interesting in the discussions that we have that. From my perspective, what we're building is, what we're building or what we're researching are learning experiences. But then if you're a game designer, actually we're developing uh, maybe games which happen to teach or learning happens to happen. And from, and if, uh, even reflecting back upon Serkin's research, who we interviewed in episode two, he was really looking at, okay, what is the tools that are needed from a chemical engineer in order to visualize some of the things that are happening from the, um, in, in the physical world in a digital form? So we have all of these different approaches and different ways we're dealing with the research. And I think it's very valuable to reflect upon each other's expertise and think about how we can make sure that all of those areas can sort of come together to complement each other. Yeah, that's true. And another another matter that made me think about my own research was asking the right question, because you mentioned that in educational science, normally you ask the why question. And that was something I didn't reflect before. And I think this perspective can ask us different things to enrich the piece of knowledge we are generating. Uh, because in, in, in at least in in uh, pure science, let's say, in chemistry or, or in chemical engineer, there, the questions normally that you, um, the research questions that you work on, some of the times are not answering the why. So that's something to, to reflect upon our own research. Yeah, this is really something that I've learned as, as I've been reading articles from uh, educational science literature compared to human-computer interaction literature. Uh, and, and also from a, from things I've learned directly from my supervisor, like Bert Sloff, is we, we're really interested in that why. And I think before beginning my research, I was, I was more of a interested in the quantitative aspects of um, in, educational interventions. But I've begun to appreciate that knowing whether or not an intervention is effective even though Emanuele might not use that term, um, it's not good enough just on its own. 
it's also really useful to know why an intervention is effective. And I think that's one of the reasons why we can't necessarily just look at a look at comparing two different interventions that have two fundamental design differences, such as one's being implemented in VR and one's being implemented um, as a as a lecture, because what we really want to know is what about the design of that learning experience is making the difference in the learning outcome is it it can't just be the technology because there's so many other things at play yeah and actually if you answer the why question then you have kind of an overview of of the specific case and in case you want to to use this knowledge for your own case then you can kind of compare which of the reasons are are similar to your case or not and then you can use it because if you yeah if you if you only answer like uh, as you mentioned the quantitative aspect then you will see okay in this particular case in this particular situation this tool help this much but i have another case i have a different situation and a different context etc so then i cannot use it because it's very specific so i think that's that was very insightful for me yeah, precisely. It's a very good way to put it. And again, I guess it leads back to that context really matters. It's the challenge of conducting qualitative research is a very real challenge. And it's necessary in some circumstances because the quantitative approach doesn't actually provide enough insight. Another one of my supervisors has called it the the black box of of learning. So we want to sort of get inside the black box and understand what's happening in there in order to have a deeper understanding of what's going on. And one way we can do this, and I'm looking at doing this in some of my own research, is really having focus groups or interviews, semi-structured interviews. And there is, um, you know, very strong social science research methodologies that can help understand um, what's happening in the background when, when, when people are learning. But again, it, it really only describes within that context and even maybe just within, that, the, in, within the group of people that you're interviewing. I don't think you can necessarily generalize uh, some qualitative research to entire populations, but uh, I, I don't know. It's, sort of, it's still something that I'm trying to figure out myself. And maybe I can ask you one question. Uh, so have you experienced uh, or have you learned or see somewhere in which situations quantitative research in educational science is useful? Yeah, okay. So I think in lots of situations it can be useful. If we look, I'm trying to think of one example where, and maybe maybe this is an example that, that is sort of answering the question. If, if we think about quantitative research being applied to the efficacy of learning analytics or a specific learning analytics intervention one example might be where a professor who has a chemical engineering course that is partly online and they are able to monitor the amount of use of an online learning environment that a uh, at a student sort of goes on so do they log into the environment do they interact with certain resources? Do they submit quizzes on time, online quizzes, things like this? So there has been some research that 
been done, I think, at Curtin University, which is in Western Australia in, in, in Australia. Mm-hmm. And um, so the learning analytics intervention was basically when there was sort of students that were identified as not interacting with the learning environment um, at certain periods of time, then the learning analytics program, in this case within Moodle, um, can sort of flag this lack of interaction in the environment to the professor or to the lecturer and say, okay, this student might be disengaged, um, send them an email, maybe see if there's there's a reason for the disengagement or something like this, this email could be automated. So by, by doing this, this is trying to mitigate uh, dropout, for example, dropout right. rates. So in this case, if a student who were not engaged in the learning environment received a certain email that enabled, that sort of prompted them to maybe seek help or or just engage them a little bit more with the course, then there was a reduction in the dropout rate. Pure, pure quantitative um, uh, research based on the number of students who drop out or don't drop out, depending on a learning analytics intervention, I think is very valuable educational research and can be applied in a practical manner immediately. I'm not sure if that sort of answers your question. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And now it gives me like a... You know, the idea in which you can mix both things. So the qualitative research part and then the quantitative, and then you can have a mixed approach in order to answer your research question in, in a different way. Yeah, and I'm not sure that research answers why the the sort of flagging of an individual student yeah. and then an email being sent by the professor, why that reduces the dropout rates for a course, for example. But we know, I mean, we could probably hypothesize that, well, for, for a number of different reasons, but without a qualitative aspect of the research, again, you wouldn't answer the why. But right. maybe you don't need to answer the why in that instance. In my opinion, if this type of learning analytics um, is working, mm-hmm. and by working it means that less students are dropping out because of the implementation of this sort of um, uh, in, in intervention, then that's also good. And you don't, maybe we don't need to understand why. But of course, it is interesting as well to know why. But then also, if you, if you think about the why in advance, so if you want to say why VR uh, is helping professionals to train in a chemical environment, then isn't that the case that you have to be sure that the tool works already in order to answer that question or not? I, th- I think what tends to be the case, though, people tend to say, is VR a better training environment than something else? Which which seems, I, I'm starting to feel it might not be the right question. And at least that's the message I get, when particularly when people talk, talking to people like Emanuele. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and now that today we are discussing about this, I'm also thinking about uh, if, if you say why this thing is better or not, then you can o- only make a theory about it. But then it's not, maybe it's not the aim to say if it's wrong or right. It's just another idea which might be helpful in, in the future, your, your uh, piece of research for another person, which then might take it and then use it in a different way. Because that's maybe the the difference uh, between the social science approach and the and the and the science the pure the science the hard, the hard the pure yeah, science yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> approach in which 
you have to prove or you have to you have to falsify your theory in order to make sure that, uh, in order to prove that it's true or not and that's sort of the main difference and maybe the 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 questions that we are uh, ch- uh, that is challenging us right now as uh, for me as a, as a pure scientist this is where i started with uh, making a kind of um yeah i start having these problems when i start thinking about my own research questions because i thought as a pure scientist and then i have to kind of mold my own thinking into uh, the research the social research approach which is also very interesting but it's different yeah i think this whole part of this this whole conversation is really one of the areas where i as i progress through my phd i realize i i need to learn a lot more about and i need to be able to articulate the the differences because i have a sort certain intuitive understanding of of certain things but i'm specifically related to how how does social sciences and the findings we have there compare with hard sciences, if that's the word that we that we use to describe chemistry, physics. I guess it's like pure experimental design compared to quasi-experimental design. I've heard those two distinctions being made, but I, I think maybe it would be a good opportunity to to have somebody on the podcast who has a little bit more expertise than, than us to try to articulate these ideas a, a little bit more carefully. Um, because I think it would be very valuable. Yeah, I think it, it requires another episode. I totally agree. Maybe a philosophy of science and or maybe, an, a, again, uh, Emmanuel, who can bring the philosophy concepts inside. I'm sure he'd be more than happy to do that, definitely. <laughs> All right. Uh, do you have any final thoughts or something you want to discuss? No, actually, I'm very pleased that you enjoyed the conversation I had with Emanuele and thank you to him for, for giving up his time to um, come, and, come and contribute to the Charming Project. Yeah, I now feel that I, I met him <laughs> in, in this way. So it was very nice. Excellent. So thank you to all our listeners who joined us uh, again for this most recent episode of the Immersive Chemistry Podcast. Just a reminder that the project has received funding from the European Union's Framework Program for Research and Innovation through the Horizon 2020 Grant Agreement. 